Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome back to our latest installment of Eye for an Eye. We are your hosts, Julia, Lisa, and Matt, and we are here to determine whether the punishment, or lack thereof, fits the crime. In our podcast, we examine cases to decide if we believe the outcome of the legal proceedings was fair and justice was met. We always love and appreciate feedback for the purposes of creating discussion, and we also want to hopefully help bring some closure to these more heart-wrenching crimes. Please feel free to comment or inquire with us and create a discussion. We are also a totally organically grown podcast. We have a Patreon page, merchandise with our logos, and a Facebook page, which we encourage all our listeners to check out to participate in these discussion boards, because that's the best way we grow and network with our friends and listeners in the true crime community. Due to the graphic nature of some of the topics we will be touching on, listener discretion is advised. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another stirring edition of Eye for an Eye, where we discuss whether the punishment fit the crime. And boy, have we got a doozy for you today. I'd like to make another quick disclaimer. This case does involve details of sexual assault, so if that is at all a trigger for you, please take note of that. Uh, We'd also like to start today's discussion with a brief discord of some basic definitions and figures of sexual assault so we can get some perspective on this ongoing travesty in America. Sexual assault is a general term that includes sexual harassment, unwanted sexual contact, child abuse, incest, and rape. Sexual contact becomes assault when a person is unable to or does not consent to an activity. Rape is a crime of aggression, power, and control in which one person forces or coerces or manipulates another person to have sexual intercourse without their consent. Rape includes vaginal, oral, or anal penetration by any object, including fingers, and also includes forced oral sex. Rape and sexual assault are crimes. Even if you know the person, you trusted the person, you've had sex with the person before, you didn't fight back, it happened a long time ago, or you were under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Sex without your consent is rape. It is wrong and it is illegal. 
only about 2% of all sexual assault accusations reported to police turn out to be false. This is the same rate of false reporting as any other type of violent crime. If it wasn't totally transparent, we wanted to take a moment to highlight the pervasive problem of sexual assault in the United States. These statistics do not encompass the rest of the world. According to the National Crime Victimization Survey, the NCVS, which is an annual study conducted by the Justice Department, every 98 seconds an American is sexually assaulted. 17,700,000 is the estimated number of women who have been the victims of rape since the 2000s. 99% of perpetrators of sexual violence who will walk free. On average, there are 321,500 victims, age 12 or older, of rape and sexual assault each year in the United States. Ages 12 through 34 are the highest risk years for rape and sexual assault. Females ages 16 to 19 are four times more likely than the general population to be victims of rape, attempted rape, or sexual assault. Those age 65 and older are 92 less likely than 12 to 24-year-olds to be a victim of rape or sexual assault and 83% less likely than 25 to 49-year-olds. One in four women and one in six men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. One out of every 10 rape victims are male. 2,780,000 is the estimated number of men who have experienced an attempted or completed rape since 1998. 21% of TGQN, transgender, genderqueer, nonconforming college students have been sexually assaulted compared to 18% of non-TGQN females and 4% of non-TGQN males. Trans people of color are 1.8 times more likely to experience sexual assault than the general population. 46% is the percentage of bisexual women who report being raped in their lifetime. African-American females experience intimate partner violence at a rate 35% higher than that of white females and about 2.5 times the rate of women of other race. American Indians are twice as likely to experience a rape or sexual assault compared to all races. 18,900 military members experience unwanted sexual contact, contact in the fiscal year ending September 2014. The 18,900 survivors, 43% of females and 10% of males reported. In 8 of 10 rape cases, the victim knows the perpetrator. 57% of the perpetrators are white. 80,600 is the number of inmates who experience sexual violence in jail, 60% perpetrated by the staff. A person with a disability is two times more likely to be the victim of sexual assault or rape than a person without a disability. 400 to $1,500 is the amount of money it costs to get a rape kit tested. According to the Violence Against Women Act, a survivor should never have to pay for their own rape kit, but many states have loopholes that force survivors to do just that. $750 trillion is the amount of money sexual violence and abuse cost the U.S. in 2008 alone. Among developmentally disabled dis adults, up to 83% of females and 32% of males are victims of sexual violence. In a study of elderly female sexual abuse victims, 81% of abuse was perpetrated by the victim's primary caregiver, 78% was perpetrated by family members, of whom 39% were sons. Women ages 18 through 24 
who are college students are three times more likely than women in general to experience sexual violence. Well, thank you guys for reading that. It's like sitting here and trying not to drown in really sad facts. Um, But it is important to note all of that because this is obviously an ongoing and pervasive problem. And the case we're going to talk about today is a glaring example of how, well, we'll talk more about it, but how the justice system does not always do these victims justice. So it might be mislabeled, the injustice system, if you will. Uh, So to talk a little bit about who exactly we mean, uh, you're all probably familiar with the name Brock Turner. If you were on social media anytime in the last, let's say, about five years ago, uh, this slimeball's name probably came up somewhere. Uh, So Brock Turner was a swimmer on Stanford University's very successful swim team and was actually seeking eligibility to join the U.S. national team for the impending Olympics in 2016. Uh, So this young man could have had a very bright future, but on January 18th, 2015, the date in question, um, on Stanford University's campus in Palo Alto, California, two graduate students biking at 1 a.m., and I have to say biking at 1 a.m., good for them for their fitness, Uh, stumble upon an unconscious girl on the ground behind a dumpster. She was passed out with a man on top of her and had her dress pulled up past her stomach. And her underwear was over to her left next to her phone on the ground. Uh, The victim's name was Chanel Miller, but throughout this case she would be known as Emily Doe to protect her identity. Uh, So I made note here, for those of you who've listened to our Grace Mullane episode, we do mention that it's a difference here in the U.S. and in New Zealand and in some of these cases how in that case the U.S. or I should say New Zealand protected the perpetrator's case. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, and it's, it's strange that they would shield their name whereas in the U.S. the victim's identity is actually withheld because they don't want the victim's family to be Right, pastured. which makes more sense. To me it does. Yeah. Maybe that's just because of our U.S. upbringing. And maybe but. that's because... It usually ends up being a person who is, um, who does turn out to be guilty because from what I researched, that was the reason that they chose to keep names out of um, the press is, you know, so that. So that's like if they think he's guilty. <laughs> well, right, like innocence until proven guilty. They didn't want these people's names to be ruined, you know, if they right. didn't end up committing a crime. Usually they do, which is why I think we have that instinct to like want to put them out there to, to fry. But. Um, I guess, in theory, it's not always the case. Well, we've noted before in past episodes that it's sad how few victims' names are remembered compared to their killers or their rapists or their Mm -hmm. anything, really. The perpetrators sometimes get this infamy that they might desire in the long run. Um, So Peter Johnson and Carl Arndt, who were two Swedish exchange grad students, noticed that her phone and underwear were over next to her and she was motionless as this man was on top of her thrusting his hips into her. Uh, So they actually very heroically intervened and stopped the assault. They tackled Brock Turner, who then got up, ran away, um, and then they chased him for a little while, pinned him down, held him to the ground, and waited until the authorities arrived before letting him up. So kudos to those two gentlemen, honestly for showing a little bit of backbone in that situation. I mean, yeah. well, 
it's like what we said for a while. If you see something, say something. And right. that's exactly like most people in this situation, I feel like don't do anything. Yep. They didn't even like stop at saying something. They did something about it. Exactly. They jumped Very right important. in. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to note that during this trial, Johnson testified that he confronted Brock Turner asking, what the fuck are you doing? She's unconscious. So they said something. And then when they realized what was going on, they jumped in. Um, and according to Johnson, Brock Turner quickly rose and fled from the scene at that point. Um, so Arndt, Carl Arndt briefly checked to determine if she was breathing and alive. And Johnson then chased Turner, tripped him, and held him down about 75 feet away from the dumpster. And something that really creeped me out, when he was pinned down, Johnson testified that he remembered Brock Turner was smiling. And he asked, what are you smiling for? This makes me sick. That's so disgusting to me. Um, so I, I don't even want to think about his mindset in that moment. But he was arrested on scene and booked by local PD on suspicion of rape. Because obviously with all this evidence mounted against him, they put the first charge they could on him. Uh, so on January 28th, he was eventually indicted for this Um after taking blood samples, after taking multiple tests for Chanel Miller, after having Brock's DNA and blood tested, uh, he was indicted on five charges. The rape of an intoxicated person, the rape of an unconscious person, sexual penetration by a foreign object of an unconscious woman, sexual penetration of a foreign, by a foreign object of an intoxicated woman, and assault with intent to commit rape. So I think it's important to note here, guys, that they defer these two things between intoxicated and unconscious and add a charge to that. Yeah. <clears throat> I was thinking that same thing. I'm actually really glad that they did that. Absolutely. Because, agree. you know, there, there are different cases here, different levels of these things where it's like you were really drunk, you were blacked out versus you were totally unconscious. Right. Um, and that has to be said. Sadly, it shouldn't change the outcome, but it does have to be noted. Well, it's one of those things that, like, I mean, people talk about this often, and I agree. If Even if you're conscious, willing, consenting, and you're in the middle of having sex with someone and you decide you don't want to do that anymore and you say no and they don't get off you, that's right. That's right. Yeah, your consent can change mid Yeah, they, you don't have to. But I do agree. Activity. I love that they really laid out every piece of this because you're right. I think each one carries a different weight, unfortunately, in the criminal justice system, which it shouldn't. So these cases, I'm sorry, these counts were summarized as two counts of rape, two counts of penetration, and one count of assault with intent to rape. So the two formal charges of rape under California state law, this is interesting to me because this was in the preliminaries of this trial, which it was not a very long trial, uh, which we'll talk about again, but these were summarized as uh, the rape charges, the formal, quote, rape charges under California state law were dropped at a preliminary hearing on October 7th after DNA testing revealed no genetic evidence of genital-to-genital -genital contact. What does that mean? That's one question that I have for you here at the end, Jules. What is the distinction there? Like, does that not make it as severe? Because according to California law, it does not. I, I don't understand why, though. Can you repeat that? What was 
What's the question? So there were two of these more severe counts that were dropped prior to the trial even taking place in the preliminary hearings because there was no DNA evidence. Like they took all these samples. There was no DNA evidence of genital to genital contact between Brock and Chanel. And therefore, these rape charges, which I have put around parentheses because I'm questioning in that case, what's the definition of rape? If it's genital to genital, is that all we're determining? Because I think that's ridiculous. That's... Well, it's interesting because uh, the three and four say by a foreign object, so I'm curious. What foreign object? Which is even, I mean, it's equally as disgusting. Well, we'll get into it a little bit here because he does, he claimed that he was fingering her. And that she had asked him to do that is later. But that's what I'm wondering. Is that the foreign object? Like, Well, and so is that why they're saying it's not genital to genital contact? Because he didn't touch her with his genitals? I guess so. And does that in any way exculpate him, though? Not to me. Like, I don't think, that if anything, who cares, to be honest, is what I would say. Like, he was, never mind. Okay. Right. We'll talk more about right. it. It's interesting because in the definition we read earlier, it does say rape includes vaginal, oral, or anal penetration by any object, including fingers, and is also forced oral sex. But that makes you wonder because is that the law's definition or is that I don't the world's know. definition? Right. I'm also on the like soapbox of like kissing someone that doesn't want to be kissed is I wouldn't call it rape but don't t- don't do anything to I me I call it assault right like don't do anything to me I don't want don't even look at me like I'm like I am that person where I'm like I don't like the way you're looking at me don't look at me well, don't do anything I don't I don't know sure there's a difference of rape and assault but they're both horrific and terrible and exactly. can damage the victim right. just the same to me it's not even a matter of how did you do it? It's the fact that you violated their space. Right. That, that that's, to me is it. That's ex- I, that's a good way to summarize how I feel. Don't ever violate my space. No. And, and once that's been clearly laid out, there's really no going back on that. It's not a question of what did you do, um, to me at least. But so after his arrest, Brock Turner tried to give a bit of an explanation for himself here. He told the police that he met the victim at the Kappa Alpha fraternity house. They, quote, drank beer together and, quote, walked away from the house holding hands, end quote, and that he took off her clothes and fondled her while she rubbed his back. Um, That's a little sketchy to me, though, considering they were in a public place and behind a dumpster is where they were found. So uh, what the fuck are you talking about? At what point did you consent to taking off her clothes? Uh, But anyways, according to the police report compiled after the incident, Brock Turner told police that he met the victim just outside the fraternity house and consentingly left with her. So he also stated that he didn't know her name and that he would not be able to recognize her if he saw her again. So again, I'll say, at what point did she agree that you could take off her clothes? Like, I don't know your name. Just met you, danced, had a couple beers. Let's go back to your place. That's what he's trying to claim. Oh, and it's, it's. I mean, we're probably going to talk about this more later, but it is one of those conversations that um, where's consent if two people are drunk? Like, because what's he claiming? He's claiming that he was at this party, assuming he was drinking too because he said he had a few beers. I'm surprised yeah. he didn't try it. Like, I mean, it's a he claimed he had a total of nine drinks that night between beer and fireball, 
according to witness testimony. What is the conversation that we can have like later on in the case? But yeah, no, definitely. It is interesting. I, I asked that question. I've seen it happen a million and six times. But Same. It's like, where is that? Right, because I think like changing your whatever the noun verb is of consent, change like changing your opinion is different than having regret. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> we've Which all been this morning thinking, oh shit. I was just Which about to I say, we've all that. been drunk as fuck at a house somewhere, meet yeah. somebody on your way out the door, and that's the end of that conversation. Right. The conversation goes from there. something is different than revoking your consent. Exactly. So. Or, or never having given consent right. to Jules yes. is the other thing, yes. right? We don't know how blacked out she was. Yeah. We will find out after we get all her blood alcohol content back. But... We don't know at the time how drunk she was. I know we're really butchering like the flow of your case, but I apologize because this is like a no, very, it's cool. It is it, 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 like sensitive. Trust me, it, this issue. information all is pertinent, and that's why it is so. Like, there's so many questions that come up, and as you read through the case more and more, you're like, God damn it, why didn't anyone say this? Um, so, during his testimony while on trial. Like I said, Brock Turner tried to offer some explanation of why he was found on top of his victim. You're like, okay, uh, good luck with that. He stated that, as I said, he and the victim had drunk beer at the party together, danced, kissed, and agreed to go back to his room. Again, didn't know her name. So they were walking home, and he stated that she slipped on a slope behind a wooden shed, where then he got down to the ground and started kissing her. Odd that he didn't help her up, but instead just got down on the ground with her and started kissing Let me help you up with my lips. Yeah. Get out of here, like bro. so weird. Weird. Eat shit in front of you. You're yeah. going to get down on their level and we, just attack like, them. This is like Aladdin, right? bro? It, like, that's the like, moment? It's like, not like the rom-com moment. Like, she slips. She laughs. No. You're laughing. Yeah. Everyone's laughing. It's not even funny. Like, yeah. No, like, it's She's not. drunk as fuck and fell. And he's like, hold on. Like, I, it's... Just ridiculous. He just sounds like a predator. He like does. He I mean, like, he's, he's clearly lying through his teeth. Um, but then at that point, so after she had fallen and after he's kissing her, he said he then got nauseous and told her that he needed to vomit. I'm surprised she didn't need to vomit. He said he got up, started to walk away to throw up, and heard another person saying something behind him which he couldn't understand. Then heard the same person talking to another person in a foreign language. So he initially denied ever having left the scene, but after the fact, he admitted that he did run from the two Swedish grad students before he was tackled to the ground. And even then, at that moment, he was defiant and tried to deny having any wrongdoing at all as they waited for the cops to show up. Like, dude, these guys had to tackle you on your way running away. What, <laughs> what are you going to say now? Clearly, he, uh, to me, this whole thing is very contrived. Yeah. And even this next part, which, again, very clearly from the mind of a sociopath, he told police, he stated then, after she fell, he asked her if she wanted him to finger her, to which he said yes. That's why he was on top of her. So he stated that they fingered, he fingered her for a minute as they were kissing, and then he started dry humping her. That was his explanation for being on top of her. Uh, yeah, what? Like, what? I'm just shocked by the audacity, honestly. Where do these guys get the audacity? That's a bullshit story, but I think it's pretty obvious. We get information as this comes about 
that the Santa Clara County criminalist, criminologist, I'm sorry, Craig Lee testified during Brock's trial that the woman's DNA was found under the fingernails of Brock Turner's left and right hands and on a portion of his right finger. So Chanel's DNA was all over his hands. It didn't show when the DNA was deposited, these tests that Lee ran, but it also couldn't tell if for sure it was blood, but it seemed to resemble blood from what he said. There was DNA that resembled blood matching Brock Turner's under Chanel's fingernails. What does that say? Brock's answer for that was that he claimed that at the moment that Johnson and Arndt came up on them and started accusing him of being sick, he responded he didn't know what they were talking about, rolled over, and started to run. Why run? Why run? Yeah. If you have a legit explanation for the nasty shit that you were doing, or you weren't thinking you were doing something wrong, why would you run? Right. If you had consent, you'd be like, oh... Like talk to her. <laughs> She's yeah, or yeah. like leave. Well, she alone. was unconscious at I the know, time, so that's the thing. Is, is like there's she, no there's no way to there's no way for him to save any of the veracity of what he says is questionable because you're like that isn't true, dude. She's unconscious right now. Prosecutors obviously did not believe Brock Turner's adap- adaptation of these events. Instead, they said that he was fabricating a story to discredit the victim and try to blame her for being intoxicated. That her being drunk and falling down the hill somehow made him climb on top of her and start kissing her. Brock's take on this story is clearly pretty flawed. But it is important to note, for the prosecutor's determination, blood alcohol testing conducted on both Miller and Turner the night in question determined that the BAC for Turner was 0.17 and for Miller was 0.22. We know, for those of you who are underage the legal limit is 0.08 i'm joking i'm sure a lot of, i'm sure a lot of people who yeah I'm, that's i'm being facetious like if you don't know that i don't know where you've been this whole time uh crawl out from under the rock it is over the legal limit it is clearly that they were drinking doesn't again change any of these facts but it's funny that both defense and prosecution use that evidence on their side of the yeah, argument in this like case. Yeah, I feel like could fit both. Yeah, it was, it was strange in how this kind of changes the perception, right? Because defense said that clearly the victim was drunk and couldn't have been trusted to recount any events and may have at one point consented and said, yeah, they were back at the frat party and she was drunk, so she told him there and, you know, ignored it. Prosecutors turned that around and said, well... She couldn't remember anything past a certain point that evening. That's fair. But that's evidence of her inability to consent because her blood alcohol content was high and was clearly not in the right frame of mind to be able to say yes or no. And not to mention she was passed the fuck out. That's just the creepiest. Like, I mean, the whole thing's creepy and disgusting, but like, what would make anybody and again i don't want to yuck anybody's yum if that's a consensual thing that you're into with your partner that's fine but like will it make people want anyone when you're drunk why would you want to assault an unconscious person Uh, that's to me yeah again like i don't i don't ever understand where that comes from because it's like what enjoyment do you get out of that truly yeah I don't know. 
blood alcohol levels and phone records actually ended up playing a huge role in the outcome of this case. And we will further discuss at the end of all this how these integral parts of an investigation come back in the trial and sentencing phase when we decide if I for an I was met. But they checked back her phone records to a certain point because at some point she said she called her sister and boyfriend and they don't know exactly what time that was. So they checked their phone records back. It was when she was still at the party, but after she had left, she called her sister. And her sister ended up testifying in court that she was hammered and could not have been able to consent anything at that point. So, and she was unconscious. Unconscious. If you needed any more uh, reason why this was insane, which it was insane, even if you are conscious, even if you had no beers, but like the added level of the fact that she was unconscious. Yeah, doesn't have any recollection of being there. So, And she was quoted as saying she lost consciousness of memory around midnight that night, which was about an hour before the assault. And there were those two phone calls, neither of which she remembers making. So you're talking at least an hour of time here where she was blacked out and could not have accounted for herself. Um, so... To me, the evidence is stacked pretty high that this girl was clearly not able to consent. But Brock Turner was held on charges of rape and posted a $150,000 bail and awaited trial on the charges related to the rape of Chanel Miller. So that went on for about six months, Brock waiting outside, and we will get into the trial and sentencing, um, which began on March 14, 2016. Those five charges that he was originally charged with, two of them were dropped, uh, as we said. Both were related to the rape charges because there was no genital-to-genital contact, which, again, we'll bring that back. I don't understand that. If anybody is in law in California, please explain why that makes a difference to me. Apparently, that is exculpatory under California law, and the requirement for contact is based on anatomical touching. I don't know why. That's just what it says when I looked it up. Again, I don't know if that's a nationwide mandated rule, but I'm curious if so, if anybody does know that, or if it's just localized to California. Brock Turner himself testified in his own defense. The victim and her sister also testified to her condition on the night in question. So I think that's important to note. Typically, you don't have both a victim and a, an accused defendant testify, right? I mean, just the shocking and emotional outcome of that, who knows? You prepare them for cross-examination, but can you ever really be prepared for being, uh, for, we'll start with his perspective, accused of rape, and then go to hers, which is even more dramatic, being raped, and then having to recount that. They all testified, including her sister, but perhaps the most damning testimony was actually of the two Swedish grad students who disrupted and stopped the rape. Their testimony condemned Turner as not only not having been remorseful, deceitful in the act because he lied about it right after being stopped and possibly most disturbing of all as we said for laughing about it when he was confronted so he clearly was not remorseful to me uh, even though they eventually tried to claim that he was we'll get into that after two weeks of tense testimony from witnesses and experts in blood alcohol content and forensic science the verdict was read by judge aaron persky on March 30th, 2016, Brock Turner was found guilty of three felonies. Assault with intent to rape an intoxicated woman, sexually penetrating an intoxicated person with a foreign object, 
and sexually penetrating an unconscious person with a foreign object. Prosecutors asked that Turner receive a six-year prison sentence based on the purposefulness of his actions, the effort to hide his activities, and her obviously intoxicated state. They said he clearly showed intent and his attempt to flee showed consciousness of guilt. I think that's all very true. And I think anything that you look back on and say, well, he tried to lie about it, he tried to cover it up, he tried to run, the more you read into it, the more it makes me think, not only did he know what he was doing, he was trying to get away with it before anything bad happened to him. To me, I, I don't understand why, but a probation official in Santa Clara County including his own probation officer, Monica Lissetter, recommended that Turner receive a moderate county jail sentence with formal probation based on his lack of criminal history, his youth, and his expression of remorse. I have yet to see any evidence of any expression of remorse. Yeah, so. where, where is his remorse? I'm not sure where that came from. I have no idea. I, it, it seems to me that based on the testimony of these two grad students, not only was he not remorseful, he thought it was fucking funny. Right. So, I don't know where that came from. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. But what really chaps my ass about this whole thing, after three more months of sentencing phase, more expert testimony, especially of his probation officer, and reading a letter from the victim, which we have a couple excerpts here that I think are very powerful, I'd like to read. Judge Aaron Persky sentenced Brock Turner to six months, not six years that they asked, six months in Santa Clara County Jail and an additional three years probation to follow. Brock Turner ended up serving three of those six months and then was released to serve the rest of his sentence at home. He is registered as a sex offender and had to undergo psychiatric counseling and participate in a sex offender rehabilitation program. Sounds like the quintessential slap on the wrist to me guys yeah honestly i think that is a horrifying outcome and on the other hand it's a lot more than other people get because they don't get accused in the first place so i don't know i mean that's just like the other side of the coin we have brock turner piece of shit who gets three months for this crime and then i mean like i said countless other people who are never even like reported not even like reported and then people don't believe it but just like not even reported well that's likely because people don't believe them and they these cases don't get taken seriously so people think why report it's just going to come back and you know be further damaging to me to right just to the social character and that's exactly what happened if i remember this correctly is like people just scrutinize and victimize Chanel because wasn't Brock like some sort of like it was, was, yeah. yeah and that that's and some people might question like why did I read that first 
Because of what you just said, Jules. Because he was looked at by a lot of people as like, well, you know, I mean, he's a nice kid, and he's on the swim team, and he's an honor student at Stanford. He might be an Olympian. Like, Not only that, but every article that came out when this happened all talked about his success and yeah. who he would they're like, uh, like, you know, accredited athlete accused of rape, but athlete, 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 where it's like, what? So I do want to read a couple quotes from Chanel Miller's letter to the judge. I think they're very, very powerful. Uh, and one of them, to your point, Jules, just brings up how she felt about that whole thing. First one I want to read is, you don't know me, but you've been inside me. And that's why we're here today. I like the directness. Yes. That's the first line. It just gives you shivers. It's just like, what a powerful statement. Right. And disturbing. Most of this is directed at Brock Turner, her letter. Um, She's talking then about an article that came out where she read the details of her rape in the article. Lord knows how they got it. And then at the bottom of the article, after I learned about the graphic details of my own sexual assault, the article listed his swimming times. That's disturbing. There you go, Lise. That's it right there. You're just like, what? Who fucking cares? Like, like literally throw this man in a garbage can and shut it. Last quote I want to read, I think is very, again, pertinent. I was pummeled with narrowed, pointed questions that dissected my personal life, love life, past life, family life, inane questions, accumulating trivial details to try and find an excuse for this guy who had me half naked before even bothering to ask for my name. I don't think it can be summed up any better than that. So Brock Turner basically got off with a slap on the wrist and Judge Persky actually received a good deal of backlash as a result of his sentence of Brock Turner. And the judge is who handed down the sentence. And that does have to be noted here. Uh, he even faced a campaign for his recall as a judge. Which I'm like, good for you, motherfucker. You know? um, his detractors claim that the sentence was clearly biased. And showed far too much leniency based on the guilty verdict. There were also rumors that this judge was an athlete at Stanford at one point. So, yeah, if that makes any difference. How is that not a... Um... Like a pre-qualifying disqualification? Like, yeah, yeah, how do you not know that and recuse yourself? But after the trial, a subsequent investigation determined that Judge Persky had to pay over $160,000 in legal fees for the appeal of him being recalled and for all the extra trial nonsense that they had to go through in the attempt to get him out. Uh, But after the guilty verdict, this to me is disgusting because... It just shows this guy's a slimeball. After the guilty verdict, Turner said to his probation officer that the encounter was consensual. He said in a written statement to the judge, it debilitates me to think that my my actions have caused her emotional and physical stress that is completely unwarranted and unfair. You motherfucker. Right, you think your life is unfair? I... Well, it just kills me that he's still saying it was consensual. Like, bro, she was unconscious, one. Yeah. Two, when you're that fucked up, even if she wasn't unconscious, you don't have the ability to have consent. He technically doesn't have the ability to make, to have consent um, of sexual intercourse being as messed up as he was as well. Like, 
there's so many factors to this that all arrows point to it was not consensual from every single area, every single way to look at it. There's no consent. There's no way. Uh, that's what I don't understand is how could you possibly conceive that she was consenting to this when she was not able to even remember being there, having a conversation on the phone with her sister? Like, what are you talking about? I've been fucked up before and I can tell you like there's a point in the night where you just don't remember shit. She was beyond that. And whether that was of her own volition or not doesn't fucking matter. I'll just say that, and we'll get more into that, because one of the questions was, and I guess the judge probably took a lot of heed to this, was she drunk enough that maybe she did consent? And that's despicable to me. Um, but I'd like to have you guys, if you would, read a few more facts about the lasting effects of sexual assault, now that we're at the conclusion of this case, before we get into eye for an eye, if you guys would read a little bit about some of the lasting effects that people who experience sexual assault have to deal with. The likelihood that a person suffers suicidal or depressive thoughts increase after sexual violence. 94% of women who are raped experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder during the two weeks following the rape. 30% of women report symptoms of PTSD nine months after the rape. 33% of women who are raped contemplate suicide. 13% of women who are raped attempt suicide. Approximately 7% of rape or sexual assault victims experience moderate to severe depression, a larger percentage than, than for any other violent crime. People who have been sexually assaulted are more likely to use drugs than the general public. 3.4 times more likely to use marijuana, 6 times more likely to use cocaine, and 10 times more likely to use any other major drugs. Sexual violence also affects victims' relationships with their family, friends, and coworkers. 38% of victims of sexual violence experience work or school problems, which can include significant problems with a boss, coworker, or peer. 37% experience family friend problems, including getting into arguments more frequently than before, not feeling able to trust their family friends, or not feeling as close to them as before the crime. 84% of survivors who are, were victimized by an intimate partner experienced professional or emotional issues, including moderate to severe distress or increased problems at work or school. 79% of survivors who were victimized by a family member, close friend, or acquaintance experienced professional or emotional issues, including moderate to severe distress or increased problems at work or school. 67% of survivors who were victimized by a stranger experienced professional or emotional issues, including moderate to severe distress or increased problems at work or school. Victims are at risk of pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections. Studies suggest that the chance of getting pregnant from a one-time unprotected uh, intercourse is between 3.1 and 5%, depending on a multitude of factors, including time of the month intercourse occurs, whether contraceptives are used, and the age of the female. The average number of rapes and sexual assaults against females of childbearing age is approximately 250,000. Thus, the number of children conceived from rape each year in the United States might range from 7,750 to 12,500. This is a very general estimate and the actual number may differ. The statistic presents information from a number of different studies. Further, this information may not take into account factors which increase or decrease the likelihood of pregnancy, including but not limited to 
impact of birth control or condom use at the time of the attack or infertility. RAINN presents this data for educational purposes only and strongly recommends using the citations to review sources for more information in detail, which we'll definitely post um, in our show notes. And it's also um, something to note that a lot of sexual assaults and rape go unreported. So these numbers are likely much higher. Right. And um, RAIN is a great resource. And like Lisa said, we'll post some information for them as well. They do have a number that you can call. So RAIN is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. You are never alone. You have resources. We are a resource, a nationally or, you know, accredited one. You are not alone. And we'll post some of that information as well. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. It is obvious that these incidents weigh on people far after the day or night that that occurs. It's obvious um, as though we need to say that, but it does need to be noted that these statistics uh, are probably much higher. I appreciate that as well. So let's get into the eye for an eye uh, aspect of this, which, whew. <laughs> I'm just going to answer no. Yeah, <laughs> no. You don't even have uh, to ask no. We'll start out with that one. Uh, <laughs> or we'll finish with that one, I guess, Jules, because uh, that's the obvious answer of all this is no. Question one that I had for you guys I think is a bit controversial. Does the blood alcohol content of a victim weigh on the culpability of an offender? And do we have to use this knowledge in the sentencing phase? No, I don't think so. Please? No, but I think, I think the flip side of that question would be like, say she was, you know, not drunk and said no, and he was drunk. I still think there's a consent imbalance there because he he technically, by legal reason, was also not able to give consent. True. Even though he was the perpetrator, of course, he didn't. He wasn't asked. He wasn't. There wouldn't have happened had he not been a monster. But uh, no, I don't think the blood alcohol content of a victim weigh on the culpability of an offender. Um, like I said, you could be sto- sober, you could be in the middle of intercourse, whenever, wherever, whatever state. It's if you say no, I'm done here. You're done there. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think the blood alcohol content of a victim it it's in it's noteworthy, absolutely. But at the same time, does that affect the outcome of the case, or should it? No, absolutely not. Um, because I think, to be honest, we've all been drunk. I'm sure most people who serve on a jury have been drunk. It's not an excuse. And that, to me, is all that matters. Even for both sides. Um, can't be used to justify and can't be used to decry. Well, right. So, like, if I hit someone with my car and that person was drunk, like... Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah, like if, I know if you were drunk too. That was no, a it, but that's a good example, but, honestly, to me, because it's like, yeah, it doesn't fucking matter. Like they probably shouldn't have been stumbling out in the road if they were right. drunk. You know, she probably shouldn't have been blacked out drunk. We can say that, but doesn't fucking stop the fact that he raped her. Okay. Right. Well, also, we're not taking into consideration. Well, we are, but like the world may not think we are because we didn't talk about it yet. People are drugged. 
that happened to me. Yeah, yeah. I was drugged in college. And Great point, Lise. And you could take three shots and suddenly not remember the rest of your night and wake up somewhere strange and not remember <laughs> what happened. happened to me with three normal shots. Right. <laughs> well, mine were not normal shots. But, like, that's what I mean is, like, okay, you're intoxicated, but whether you got there by drinking yourself, why should someone have to fear doing something that everybody else can right. do without fear? You know what I mean? Yeah. Should it matter one way or another? No, I, I, I think not at all. Um, so I want to highlight the sentence real quickly before we talk about yes or no fair sentence. Despite this guilty verdict he received, Brock Turner received a lenient sentence. I think we can all say that. Um, why do we think that is, though? And does the judge have to share any blame over that? Why? Because he's white. He was an athlete from a decent, you know, income home, it seems. Went to Stanford. Uh, that's why. That's why. And he's a white male. Right. I don't disagree as a white male. <laughs> I don't disagree in the slightest. And yeah, I do think the judge has to share blame, especially because you said there seems to be some... some it just... There. I mean, a white old man making a sentence for a white young dude, I just feel like if if Brock's skin color was any different, he would have been thrown away without a key beyond. I, right. I also think it's just like his youthful appearance, like, you know blonde California kid like yeah man like I'm sorry you know like tried to seem as though he was really you, you they I, it seems to me that the defense tried to paint him as really being like oh he's a nice kid he just fucked up he made a mistake when he was drunk and I think that's a big part of it at least like you said you know young educated white kid looks like he could have a future in front of him so we don't want to ruin that because of one bad night where it's right. like and on the other hand Chanel's like she will never forget this in her life. Her entire life has changed, right? So a caveat to that, since we think the judge may have had some ties, should judges be responsible for sentencing offenders, or should it be based on the recommendation of jurors or families victims, or families of victims? I should say. We've talked about this before, but I want to get your input on this case in particular. I don't know families of victims. Like, that's, that might just be, like, crossing a line of becoming too personal. Mm -hmm. I've heard that suggested many times, though, Jules, that people say, like, the victim's family should decide I, what happens if they're found guilty. Like, yeah, I'd be like, cut that fucking I think that's also more so if the victim is not there to advocate. That too. Yeah. That too. Like, I feel or like should it be up to I the victim? If I was in a courtroom and my parents were the ones for some reason who got to choose the sentence, I'd be like, "Pick me! What the fuck? Let me let me get at him." But I do understand that idea for victims of like murder where someone ends up dead, um, because having the family be able to have a say in that decision, I I think it's not the worst idea in the world. I think obviously. It should be within the law and within reason. Right. Um, yeah, they can't be like, cut his balls off in public. Although yeah. that would be me, 100%. I would 1,000%. And that's why I thought of that in that instance, because that would 1,000% be what I would think would and should happen. But isn't it in life kind of on the recommendation of the jurors? Because aren't the jurors typically given like what the options are and then they pick what they want to find yes and then the person guilty for i believe the judge issues the verdict though yeah like he picks in the end but doesn't like it's based on their recommendation yeah. yes to an extent i believe yes 
I also want to circle back to Brock Turner for a moment because, again, he was drunk, right? That was part of his defense. When we examine his defense and his attitude after the crime, does his perception have any weight in his sentencing or should it? And by that, I'm asking you guys, like, do you think what he said and him being drunk should in any way outweigh what they're perceiving about him? No. No? I think him being drunk hurts his case because even if she consented, he couldn't consent technically. True. I think the only way that I think him being drunk would like really turn the tables for me is if like instead of running off and and trying to flee the situation you had that like we talked about earlier that next day regret of like oh my god what did i do right and and from you know that's that's not what happened he didn't even like even when those guys approached he wasn't like oh my god like kind of like snapped out of it he was like trying to run away and act as if he was innocent so I don't think it matters. Like, it doesn't... It doesn't matter. I agree with you guys 100%. Like, I wanted to note that because that was what his defense said. And I think that is important because that might be part of the reason the judge sentenced him the way he did. But at the same time, I don't... I agree. I don't think that should fucking matter. Well, it seems like the judge pretty much was like, you were both drunk. Yeah, and that's what I mean. I think the judge kind of looked at it as like, yeah, hey, you know, college kids will be college kids, and when they're out drinking, who knows what'll happen. I mean, not in the judge's defense, because fuck this judge, but, like, they were, they both had a pretty dangerously high BAC. Yeah, oh, they were both definitely intoxicated. And so I think the judge took that and ran as far as he could with it. Right, took that one to hell with him. Yeah. So the, the next question I had before, last question I had, and I think it's honestly... It's more a matter of, again, our opinions on this one, but I'd like, this is one that I'd like to hear everyone's opinion back when we go back to discuss this case. Should we consider the genital to genital contact a fair basis for the term rape if the act was forcible? No. Genital to genital should not have any bear. You could rape someone with a can of paint. Like you could, you, whatever right, it a is. A found object. Right. Like still, you're still violating That's right. someone. Anything at all, right? Person. Yeah. Okay, because and the only reason I wanted to point that out is because, again, two charges were thrown out in the preliminary trial. And I see, and I wonder if that would have impacted the sentencing. Probably Same. not, because it sounds like this judge was a douche. But, but going from five charges two of them being raped and then the or two of them being raped and then those two charges being dropped right yeah that's garbage garbage to me this and, makes and, me really angry and, and I, because of a technicality like if they had ridden up 30 seconds later would he have had his pants down and then is it rape yeah to me like that doesn't make any fucking difference her dress was pulled up over her stomach her panties were lying over here on the ground next to her phone which is not within reach why does it fucking matter that he didn't have a chance to unzip his fly yet? I, I that that's stuck good, to me. That's like, a good point. Yet, yeah, those that's what I'm saying. Come up on him. Maybe if they'd have taken a loop around and it'd be another five more minutes, and that's what I'm saying. That that is what's bothering me. Is like they had two charges thrown out because of this strange. And again, anybody out here who's from California, 
If you know about this law, please give us some feedback because I tried to look it up and I cannot find California penal law online like that. I mean, I'm sure it's somewhere, but I could not find a specific definition. I think the judge was grasping at straws to try to make this white boy seem like he was some sort of like victim himself. Really exactly. Make the go away. Right. Like try to help out the victim or try to help out the perpetrator, make him seem like he was the victim. So, the underlying question, the reason we're all here. No. No. Do we want to harmonize on this one again? We do it as hell no. No. Hell to the no. Hell no. Yeah, honestly, Brock. Well, did we ask the question? Oh, yeah, let's ask the question. I jumped the gun. Was I for an I met? And what would be inappropriate? (laughs) You guys didn't let me finish the question. No. 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 Um, So. I think murder would be inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Take this motherfucker out back and beat him to death. Um, but I agree. Definitely not. I, I, I can't fathom how you can... He was recommended to get six years, and the judge was like, months? Like, that's <laughs> Trying I'm, to charge you. I'm like, what? fucked up. Yeah, like, what, dude? Where'd you get six However, months? However, the original sentence I do think would be fair. Although I do struggle with it because, like we talked about with all these statistics, the crime that Brock committed... For Brock was a one night fuck up, but for this woman is going to last her the rest of her life. Yes, is going to follow her forever. Is going to haunt her forever. Is going to be something that she has to deal with forever, having to deal with the horrifying, you know, realities of what happened to her when she wasn't able to consent or wasn't able to even remember. And she read her case on the internet. That's how she found out what happened to her. Yeah, the trauma of that lasts. A lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And and that letter... And so that's why I mean, it's hard for me to be like, well, six years is like, okay, because... The way she describes it, and that first sentence caught me so much, you don't know me, but you've been inside me. Like, that fucks with me, because I'm like, I cannot even fathom having that type of callousness towards somebody. I don't know your name. We've never met. But, and, and I, I mean, I don't know. I'm... I always feel like I'm the one suggesting the most harsh sentences for people. And that's a shame because I really do believe that, like, I don't like victim shaming and I certainly don't like putting people on a pedestal. But I really think there are a lot of people out there who have just made mistakes and who have fucked up and who have been fucked over by the justice system. So a lot of these, a lot of these kinds of cases, I always feel like I'm the one being like, just take him out back and shoot him. You know, like, we don't really... And I don't always believe that. In this case, I agree with you 100% at least in what you said that like upscale, raised, rich, white dude, swimmer, you know, golden boy type thing. All that comes to mind when I read about this kid and I'm thinking like they just didn't want to give him the short end of the stick. Even though he grabbed that fucking stick and rode the short end all the way to hell, they didn't want to put him in a bad spot. And the judge, I mean, when I say they... And that to me is like, you know, I, I would I would think like 10 years. I think you yeah, should from, I agree. you should lose out on your 20s. Yeah. You should lose out on that. Fuck your swim team. You like, should fuck lose out. Fuck your swim out. team. Yeah. That's going to be the name of that. Fuck, fuck your, your swim, swim team. team. Like no one that. cares. Fuck your swim team. I don't know if I can put fuck it. Maybe like F your swim team. I like that. All the fuck is more powerful. Um, How about you just put F with the star CK. Fuck your swim team. Okay. So you guys just heard us coin the name for this episode. Fuck your swim team. Real time. Literally, yeah. I 
dramatically I want Brock Turner dead, but I I know that's not with that's then an abuse of the justice system, and I'm not a proponent of that either. But I think that the sentence that he received and carried out is a slap in the face to Chanel Miller, and I'm going to make it like a goal to learn more about her because I think it's sad that we she wrote a book about her. Oh, did she? I'll read mm-hmm. it. Her book is called Know My Name, a memoir. Wow, powerful. Here for it. Yeah, oh, yeah. and it's it's a very popular book. And you literally just said, Jules, we don't know much about her. Like, there it is. Yeah. Know my name. And they they called her Emily Doe throughout the trial, so as she wouldn't be recognized. It's like now that comes back around, you're like, fuck, really? Like, yeah. She doesn't. I don't. She doesn't even know about her own case until she read about it. Here's a little excerpt of the book, and I think everybody should read it. She was known to the world as Emily Doe when she stunned millions with a letter. Brock Turner had been sentenced to just six months in county jail after he was found sexually assaulting her on Stanford's campus. Her victim impact statement was posted on BuzzFeed where it instantly went viral, viewed by 11 million people within four days. It was translated globally and read on the floor of Congress. It inspired changes in California law and the recall of the judge in the case. Thousands wrote to say that she had given them the courage to share their own experiences of assault, of assault for the first time. Now she reclaims her identity to tell the story of trauma, transcendence, and the power of words. It was the perfect case in many ways. There were eyewitnesses. Turner ran away. Physical evidence was immediately secured. But her struggles with isolation and shame during the aftermath and the trial revealed the oppression of victims face, even in the best case scenarios. Her story illuminates a culture biased to protect perpetrators, indicts a criminal justice system uh, designed to fail the most vulnerable, and ultimately shines with courage, with the shines with the courage required to move through suffering and live a full and beautiful life. No, my name will forever transform the way we think about sexual assault, challenging our beliefs about what is acceptable, and speaking truth to the tumultuous ways of a tumultuous reality of healing. It also reintroduces reader to an extraordinary writer, ones whose words have already changed our world. Entwining pain, resilience, and humor, this memoir will stand as a modern classic. Listen to this quote. The judge had given Brock something that would never be extended to me. Empathy. My pain was never more valuable than his potential. That literally, I'm like, I have wow. goosebumps. Same. I got chills. All right, well, that is the story of Chanel Miller first and sadly Brock Turner Uh, but we encourage anybody to please reach out to us if you have any feedback on this case if you have any opinions about how he should have been sentenced Um, it'd be awesome if Chanel could hear this we'd love to get her opinion yeah Chanel I'm literally buying your book tonight like ASAP yeah Um, and so if anyone else um, actually you can probably check your local libraries yeah (laughs) Um, not that we don't want profits to go towards Chanel but also I think it does if it's still at the library because the library purchased it. Yeah, the library. Anyway, that's a whole other tangent, but I will be reading it. So if you read it, um, love to have a convo with you about that. Um, Thanks for listening. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your foes. Um, And that's all, folks. See you later. Bye.